Hello and welcome to your favorite comic book YouTube channel, Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Jim Rugg. I'm Ed Piscor. We are continuing our journey through Wizard Magazine, looking at issue number 58, June 1996. A pretty interesting uh, issue of Wizard, if I do say so myself. I'm excited to unpack this one with you, Ed. I want to remind everybody first that this channel is brought to you by Cartoonist Kayfabe Patreon. We have three different levels that will get you access to our videos early. And at the King Kayfaber level, you will get all of our videos first and you'll get to sit in on our recording session. This gives you an advantage in the Kayfabe effect. If you see something on our channel that you want to add to your collection, you'll be the first one tracking it down. Sometimes these things are rare, they disappear, or they go up in price. So one good book in a month and it'll pay for your uh, Patreon subscription. So check that out, see what level works for you. So we have been looking at Wizard from the very beginning and uh, it was the best of times and now it's approaching the worst of times for comics so it's kind of interesting to see how wizard responds to that what are the big companies doing and if they're not doing much let's kind of look a little bit left field and that's what this issue is we're going to see some real coverage of like indie and self-publishing and just stuff that's outside the norm mad props on that joe mad cover man uh he like he's he's fully formed at this point uh the joe mad that everybody got very excited about is here represented uh, on this cover with these kind of proportions all, and the way that he's building like the hands and stuff influential in a generation uh pivots the american you know comic book penciler away from jim lee era and we're now in joe mad era so you'll get the humberto ramoses and the mike waringos and certainly the roger cruises and, and these guys are going to start to show up uh, after and adopting a lot of these tricks right and these tricks being things like influenced by video games influenced by anime and manga some influences that we had not seen in previous generations of cartoonists that were often just pulling influence from the previous marvel dc styles joe mad is a weeb the other piece here gambit is much more popular than i realized oh, at the time yeah, and uh, <laughs> mentioned quite a bit whenever they get into like uh, one of the stories in here is about the x-men trader and gambit is heavily heavily when, mentioned when i saw these i was like are these onslaught calling cards for phone companies is that what we're promoting but it's just uh you know it's just a comic that's so funny because i still couldn't tell you like looking at it no yeah can't even tell what what comic they're promoting there kurt busiak's astro city moving over to homage comics jim lee's uh imprint at still at image comics and astro city one of those things that kind of a celebrated bright spot of the superhero genre at this time period totally like kurt busiak could do no wrong and, and uh he was in that space where comics writing was so abysmal still very 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 uh image driven driven and if you were just i'm not saying i like kurt Busiek. i i've never i don't think i've read a kurt Busiek comic i i didn't it didn't enjoy like his contribution of we'll say uh but if you could string a story together like you're going to get work and he was very celebrated probably the best of those guys that could turn out those pot boilers uh, on on you know very regular basis and 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 have you know five six books come out per month did some smart gimmicks too like Astro City at least the first series all self-contained issues mm. and most of them would focus on different characters so like you could pick it up and it was like oh, cool it's a whole superhero story here he knows the deal you know he, he cut his teeth on on the classic Silver Age comics so he knows what 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 can work and that is just that is a smart move did not hurt that he has his uh his marvels collaborator alex ross providing covers because here's the other guy who's celebrated at this point in comics 
is Alex Ross big time. So you get a nice Alex Ross cover on each issue. That's better than any foil enhancement gimmick that you could think of. His and it is a gimmick. Oh and, yeah. And his and his cosign sells fucking comics, man. Like if if he approves of it, people would give give these things a look. Like I, I think at a certain point he definitely uh, watered down like his his options and stuff like that to the to the point of like what like where you don't necessarily chase down you know this alex ross cover but at this time for for a good run yeah because we're looking right here at a story that's going to be on kingdom come uh check out our video on that one yes but this is probably peak alex ross in terms of popularity like he had done no wrong up to this point mm -hmm. and uh people are just loving him wherever you can get it so getting cover for every issue of astro city was a real Really a great move by Kurt, Kurt Music and everybody. Brandy Anderson, the guy who does the heavy lifting inside of Astro City, I always thought it was really well drawn. I remember running into him at my first San Diego Comic-Con and he was selling pages so cheap and it blew my mind because in my mind, it's like, this dude's really good. Yeah. Why are these pages not marked up a lot? Although, to be fair, all the original art at my first San Diego Comic-Con, way, way below, you know, maybe two zeros below what it would be today. The only comic I think I had from him before... Astro City was like a one-issue fill-in of X-Men that had the Despair Man Thing characters He, he did um, the graphic novel God Loves Man Kills. That's true. Yeah, that's I did that's have something that. I would see. And he also did something that I picked up recently as Somerset Holmes. I think it's Eclipse, but it might be a different one of those 80s publishers, but it's like a, a hard-boiled detective kind of series. About six issues or something. It's pretty good, but he was around. Yeah. But he had that um, almost like a Neil Adams kind mm -hmm. of natural style, and like I said, I always thought it looked great, but it didn't see him on high-profile stuff, but Astro City was, was pretty high-profile. Totally. Kind of cool to see the Max and Aeon Flux in this ad. Yeah, it's the era, dude. Like, uh, like the... Uh, it's it's so close to my heart because that's, like, that's this middle school when those when those uh, shows were, were on, you know, TV in their original forms. Really amazing for animated work. Like, the styles, unlike anything else being done, like, remarkable that that's something MTV could claim. Totally. And, and, you know, they would woodshed, you know, they had liquid television before this and we interviewed Peter Chung on the channel. He's, he's like, I put the most effort in on my liquid television skits and I get to get a show. Uh, the other noteworthy show on liquid television was Beavis and Butthead. And my judge already had that. Like it wasn't, it was licensed. So, you know, he, he put in the effort, he put in the sweat equity, the sleepless nights, and he got to do, you know, a series of a, a season of a, t of a TV show wh where he was the creative helm. We and have, we have two good solid interviews with him on the channel. A series that continues to be relevant, you know, decades later. So impressive. Uh, any letters pop out to you? Uh, not not in specific, but the delivery mechanism is noteworthy. Uh, coming from CompuServe, coming from uh, AOL.com. So we're at the earliest stages you know this is 1996 so windows 95 is out so we're at the earliest stages of internet correspondence which which is just it's it's fantastic <laughs> airbrushing and painting your envelope art <laughs> it's amazing it's wild too like what gets coverage at this point i would almost call that like bisley coverage even though it's it's that amalgam captain america batman stuff but that art is unmistakable yeah totally and this is Diflator mouse from uh the tick cartoon was never ever in the comics so that's clearly 
a reference to the cartoon show, which was, which is fantastic. You know, Ben Edlund, like he, he might not have, not have done it issue thirteen, but he explored those stories on on television in living color. So, yeah, one of one of the high points I think of adaptations and a lot of his imprint all over that show really uh, kept that kept that tick quality level. Jim Lee returns to Wildcats with the the Alan Moorhelm stuff. Like uh, Jim Lee, you know, he got he earned his bones through the speculator boom with X-Men 1 and, you know, Big Willie on, on the, the Uncanny X-Men series. But in terms of professional respect and, and the craft, the drawing is, is what it is, but he doesn't have that critical hit. And this is him trying to buy that critical hit early on before, before you know, Frank Miller's still sore at him for uh, doing that death blow shit. So he ain't collabing with uh, Uncle Frank. So he's able to buy Alan Moore to write some scripts. It's interesting to think of how successful he is, arguably the most successful comic book artist, you know, based on sales and whatnot, but did seem to be a student of like that quality, like like a big fan of Alan Moore, big fan of Frank Miller. You know, how do you make these great comics and studying the guys who had made the great comics? Can't buy it, Uncle Jim. You can't buy it, sir. I recently picked up this whole run, the, the complete Alan Moore Wildcats, mm-hmm. and um, I was going to read them the other night. I read, we, we looked at the first issue yeah. on the channel and it was good. It was kind of interesting to see like what's Alan Moore pull out of Wildcats. And it was sort of like the Cliff Notes version as he's relaunching it. And I was like, all right, let me read the second one. And I forget who the artist is, but it's not Travis Charest. It's right. not Jim Lee. Might be Dave and Johnson. It, I can't remember. I don't think it was, but it's like a fill-in guy for like a couple of issues. Yeah. You know, it's like they're kind of getting all the pieces in place and i was so discouraged looking at it that it's i was bad. like i'm gonna keep going yeah it's bad like the uh because even you know travis Sheray, however you say his name it takes him so long to make his pages that they have to like cons- have form concessions and have like dave johnson do like the first 10 pages and he draws the like the, yeah. the last 10 every issue or something and dave johnson's good but it's spotty like you like you want to just see what Uneven. he could do there, there it is, man. And, you know, Alan Moore's doing what he can with, you know, the material Yeah, it makes available. me curious because he does, like, 15 issues. You know, like, it's kind of a, a bit of a run. Yeah. But, I don't know. One of these days, maybe. <laughs> we'll see. This video is brought to you by the Cartoonist Cafe Patreon. Become a King Kayfaber and mitigate the Kayfabe effect. You get all the videos before anybody else. We have more than 1,400 videos up on the channel as we speak hit the little magnifying glass search around to see if we're talking about your favorite comics if not let us know in the comments so that we can show off uh the your favorite stuff on the channel the videos are brought to you by the books that we make before you is a healthy bibliography of the stuff that we have available but there's new material coming out all the time the hip-hop family tree omnibus is coming to you this holiday season in fact your store needs to order it now uh they have the, that opportunity to do so it's going to come out october 18th collecting all four volumes of hip-hop family tree plus 140 pages of additional material 500 plus pages of comics in there the x-men grand design trilogy trade paperback is coming to you in november just in time for christmas as well several volumes of that are out of print as we speak the current focus is Red Room, and two trade paperbacks of Red Room are out there, Anti-Social Network and Trigger Warnings. Crypto Killers is the latest miniseries of Red Room, and there is a backup feature that is going to show off the kids, the, the characters that I'm covering in my daily comic strip in 2024, so this is going to be a hot key. Jimmy's got plenty of stuff on the horizon. Street Angel Princess of Poverty is coming out in November. 
this is going to collect all of the Street Angel material before Street Angel Deadliest Girl Alive. So you need both volumes to, to have all of Jim Rugg's Street Angel comics on hand. The Hulk Grand Design Treasury Edition book is out of print. So when you see this, it's going to be your last opportunity to scoop up these books. Make sure you do so. You might be able to find some on Amazon, but they are going, going quick quickly jimmy's been in the self-publishing game for a while this 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 past year he's got true crime funnies three non-fiction stories a couple of them uh have wrestling in the subject matter 1986 zine and the bw zine are back the bw zine back in print and 1986 zine is on the horizon we need to do a whole episode on this jimmy now that we're done paying the bills back to the video uh, Batman, no more crossovers. So we're hearing Denny O'Neill is, is going to focus on shorter stories, have at least one self-contained issue a month of all the Batman families. Um, I think this is really reflective of like, sales have gone down a lot in the last year or two, and it's just like trying to do something. They took a lot of bites of this, this crossover Apple, the last one probably being Contagion or whatever. So maybe we got to like pump the brakes and... And try to figure out how to how to get new readers into the mixture, man. I'm reading the uh, the Grant Morrison run, and there are stories like the Return of Ra Ra Ra's Al Ghul mm -hmm. that you know get carried over into Robin comics and shit. And it's like, come on, man, just like let me read this comic. Like, like I bought your comic. Why do you got to make me go buy some other? Erzatz comics. When I see that, in my mind, it's like, you're punishing me for buying individual issues. Exactly. Do you want me not to buy these? Right. And, hey, you got your wish. You yeah. know, individual issues, low low selling at this point. And I think, like, you're just really aggressively against the person who's buying, wants to buy the monthly Batman book. Such a revolving door. Like, it was it was a special time that Denny O'Neill gets to be editor for as long as he, as he was. But nowadays, uh, you know, just to bring it back into modern times and stuff, like, these editors it's a total revolving door so the only the only thought is short-term gains because yeah they, right. because they know that they're not going to be in that position they're, very they're, long. they're sports gms it's like yeah. if you don't turn the cells around then you'll be out and the next person will get a shot at it that's it and it'll be shake it up again and, and try something new uh burn going to the to new gods eventually he would do jack kirby's fourth world which i assume this was and i think it probably spins out of this but I the way so. it's set up is he's taking over an existing new god series yeah or like or like starting a new one or something like that but and and we know that it's simonson who does the one called new god so i think you are correct this is very noteworthy too the uh, marvel 2099 editor joey cavalieri is dipping he's leaving marvel and he's going to become the superman editor this is noteworthy to me because in the later part of the 90s early 2000s he is the spearhead of a lot of interesting material over at uh over at dc bringing in hernandez brothers peter bag mm -hmm. uh he may be the spearhead of bizarro comics um, yeah i think he is yeah so he he's there a while yeah like he was there i think like 20 years or something maybe yeah yeah yeah. and he and he started out there you know scott mcleod on our channel talked about uh going to look at manga at at uh, the kino Cunha bookstore and joey cavalieri was there too that's fun. It lets you kind of know who's who in your, uh, as your co-workers with who you run into in interesting places. Yeah, totally. Uh, man, the Ultraverse just limping to its finish. <laughs> Editor's Mark Panacea. The first uh, place I've ever seen his artwork was pinups in uh, Ninja Turtles, you know, when Mirage would do that. And when I was doing uh, Grand Design, he was the first uh, ex-editor that, like, when when I was over there really? at Marvel. Yeah, he, so he, he was... Uh, 
you know, working at that level. But he's a, he's a cool artist. He's he's an outlaw artist. At, at least, you know, I just know his artwork from that that period. You know, he he decided to cash in his chips and be like a company dude or something. But the dude could draw. I would see him in some of those '80s black and white books. Yeah. Sometimes it's like a, maybe it's a publisher or something. Mm. Seems seem, seem like he was a yeah definitely a player, w- working around in those different venues. Um, Scott McCloud will write Superman adventures here in our buzz box. We did an episode of that, which was fantastic. Tom, Tom brought it over and it was, it was one of my favorite episodes that we did. It was one of my favorite comics that we read on the channel. The, it was very good. The idea of that issue was that if the, the light that you see from stars is maybe decades old or a hundred years old or a billion years old or something like that, well, then maybe Superman on earth can use his telescopic vision and watch Krypton explode because of that delay of like light speed and stuff. And that's just a fit. Yeah. It's such a smarty pants idea, beautifully executed. And just like Batman adventures, Superman adventures are the best Superman comics coming from DC because it doesn't have all of all that baggage. That's why we can do one issue. Yeah. There's a complete story in there. Um, Darkness for Top Cow is being mentioned here with Garth Ennis from Preacher will be writing with Mark Silvestri drawing. I bought this off of the stands when I was in college as that was noteworthy. It was one of the original image guys starting a new book. And this is about whenever Silvestri and Top Cow are really building momentum. I think Witchblade had come out before that and was a hit. And it felt like they were, he had figured out whatever the code was, you know, at that point, Top Cow's up there. Another Kingdom Come ad. We've been seeing these in several of the past wizard issues. Um, also covered that one in a previous episode. That's the big book at this time period. You know, they, they build it and uh, people come. Yeah. Look at how boring that is. Yeah. And and you know, it's, it's funny because like one of the things that we're building to as we continue doing Wizard Magazines is the inevitable creation of uh, CrossGen. And CrossGen publisher Mark Alessi, some big time rich dude that just... Uh, when it created a vanity comic book company and where we're at now you're seeing repeating names of writers so like we got carl kessel mentioned here you have ron mars mentioned you have mark wade mark alessi buys these guys makes them move house and home down to florida to be under his thumb to like write his vanity projects and uh i just can't help but think that like as we keep going through these issues, you're just seeing the same names over and over. I don't doubt that uh, that Kurt Busiek was approached and was like, get the fuck out of here, man. Like, uh, why would I participate in your little vanity project? But everybody has a price and you could buy Ron Morris for cheap, probably. I'm very curious to have somebody come in that was there yeah. and give us the whole story because that is the blackest spot in my like history of comics. Like, I don't... I never bought a cross gen. I'm not sure I ever looked at one. Like yeah. that was really like I was out. I was completely out on those kinds of comics. And it ran like five years. It was around for a lot longer than I remembered. Like talking to a few people off the record that worked yeah. for them. Yeah. It makes me want to like bring those people on and let's hear stories. Yeah. Because that's such I mean, it's almost like comics is cult. Totally. You know, like it's a that is a weird piece of comics history and I would like to know more. There should be a good book about it, like a tell all. I bet everybody had NDAs and stuff for it. Yeah, and, and, and he's well past, so they could be be honest. Uh Colleen Duran goes to goes to image, very noteworthy. I have the two trades of of, of her works there. Uh she talks about um I don't know if it's if it's mentioned in here. She comes up again later because we're gonna look okay, at like yeah, some yeah. top indie comics and she says something really interesting there. 
Uh, but it is cool to see that happening because like Jeff Smith's bone had gone to image just shortly before this. And now you have uh, distant soil going there. And they mentioned Terry S. Woods wondering star now it's serious. This is like the aftermath of those distribution wars where like self-publishers are in trouble, you yeah. know, like they're trying to figure this stuff out. And uh, quite a few of them, I think a lot started at least looking to align with a company like an image comics. Yeah, totally. Jack, Jack Abel passes. Uh, when I was at the Kubert school teacher, uh, Phil Felix, the lettering teacher, he was a Marvel bullpenner and he brought, uh, there was like a one or two page comic that they made in the bullpen celebrating uh, Jack Abel that was just like floating around. You know, you got a bunch of artists in there, so they're, yeah. they're making comics. And and whenever he would mention uh, Jack Abel's name, like he, like he would he would cry, like he would get very teary. So uh, Abel left like a very positive impression on uh, you know the, his his fellow uh, bullpenner. Caliber Press mentions Mike Diodato's comic. Uh, Fallout 3000. We looked at a bunch of these Caliber Diodato comics. I really like them. They're, they're kind of cool black and white comics. Uh, it's bizarre to me, like, what gets mentioned. You know, like, what makes it into a piece of color art in Wizard Magazine? Pretty wild. And uh, this Crow series, I don't think I've ever seen. I kind of like the design of a, of a female crow. Right. Kind of interesting. You remember what that's about? I don't. So there was, like, a custom figure article <laughs> in the yes. last issue. And, and, there, and there was a space this shape in that article but there was no toy so like it was a how-to yes and a tutorial and there was no end result so they're saying oops we forgot to uh, publish the uh final photo that's hilarious acme acme novelty 7 is coming out from fantagraphics uh 11 inches by 18 which is fa fascinating you know it's one of the one of the big ones giving jimmy corrigan a little bit of a break and then uh showing off some of his like one and dones that he would do for like those are nice week i like those big like the almost like sunday pages those are really sharp possibly uh fodder for a future episode but it describes it as wears zany artwork was seen <laughs> in the oscar preview issue of entertainment weekly that part is is interesting to me is like it's still like such a victory to get comics into these more mainstream media outlets. Well, I wonder what that means. Like, like did 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 he do a comic commissioned by Entertainment Weekly? Because they would do that. Mm -hmm. You know, like whenever I was inspired to send Harvey P. Car, yeah, could be I, a uh, a package of stuff. He, like, we had a subscription to Entertainment Weekly, and and there were there were like new crumb Harvey P. Car strips in Entertainment Weekly. They commissioned that stuff. And they paid a fucking oh, yeah. princely sum, dude. I always remember the um, the crumb, around the crumb time, Charles Burns doing a spot illustration of crumb. Mm. And it was such a cool illustration. But in my mind, I was like, why didn't crumb, why isn't it crumb artwork? My, uh, uh, Mark Zingarelli, like, when I first met him and, and scooped stuff up, you know, he had such a robust illustration career. He showed me, like, in Photoshop, he, like, in a Helvetica, like, wrote, you know, some some title page and put a stroke on quotation marks and sent that to the public, you know, the publisher for of what Esquire or something like that. He's like, I got paid $1,600 for these quotation marks with the stroke around it. Jeez. Yeah. Just for some, something that got. Those are fun stories, but then you go, why did the illustration market collapse? Right. You know what I mean? It was, it, it, like all this stuff ends up bloated. Hey, under Extreme Studios for Image Comics News is Bad Rock Wolverine uh, by Valentino and Chap Yape. It's the first of the crossovers. 
I just picked that up. Yeah, they, yeah, we got sent a couple of those. Oh, maybe that's where I got it yeah, from. Yeah, because, uh, you know, shouts to the kayfabers, because it was actually solicited in earlier episodes that we talked about, and I'm like, oh, more Chappie Up comics. I, I, don't, I yep. don't know about those. And then we got about three copies. So, <laughs> so thank you, thank you, kayfabers. Yeah, I like his art, and there's not a ton of it. I think that War Child is maybe my favorite of his. It feels yeah, like it's, that's it's an the most rigorous. Or, right, maybe the thing he spent the most time on. So, and, and you know what? Speaking of, uh, speaking of uh, like the illustration game, too, like later, probably 97, 98, after all this comic shit goes away for Chappie Up, the last comic pages I ever saw from him, it's a it's an ad in, in comics, probably like around like when JRJR is doing like some spider title. Um, but it's a Vans ad and it's this robot with some cool boots and shit like yeah. that. And then you see the name, like it's Chappy App. And so like, he's so used to making, you know, 900 bucks a page off of Rob Liefeld or whatever, that like the little jobber rates of Marvel, like after everything shakes out, the, the market correction occurs. He's like, fuck that. I'm going to still try to be making uh, $2,000 a page or whatever. Yeah. Spawn number 50 has a new Todd McFarlane uh, lead story, Pencils and Inks. I don't remember that. I would pick that up if I found it. The, the Chap Yap Vans ad almost looks like this with the same colors. I tracked this down when I started like rebuying image stuff. It's so cool looking. It is, it is, it is hyper detailed. And it's kind of like mech, you know, Japanese influence, which I find interesting too for that time period, especially. My dude Dan Bedrosian from from Parliament Funkadelic. He's he's from he's from uh, Boston, and I guess it's on the other side of the state is is Northampton or where, yes. wherever Words and Pictures is. The other side of the state. So so uh, it it wasn't never convenient to him. But he goes, yeah. Did you ever go there? Because I know you guys said on the channel that that you never got a chance to go there. Like I'm like, well, it's done now. He's like, oh, it's still a museum, and they still got a lot of the stuff. Like it's not specifically a comic museum, but you'll see shit there you'll see comic stuff there that's what he told me man i was not getting into it whenever i was peering through the windows and banging on doors like it was locked up tight and closed when i was there yeah what was it a museum i i thought it was just a closed down building like there was still sign there might have still been signage because i was able to see it yeah but like as far as i know there was no open anything there i don't know if anything was still hanging in there that's interesting i wonder if it's reopened under new ownership or something like that k favors let um, us know this show looks amazing though yeah. it's image founders and uh cerebus artwork all the artwork from the mind's story like 13 issues worth of artwork up on the walls from dave sim and gerhard combined with a bunch of image creator artwork that would have been imagine that for a weekend dude totally and i, th I think especially in the 90s like whenever it wasn't common to see that kind of original art I think that um, Dave Sim stuff, like those might be the the pages that you like put together and it creates a big tapestry. I don't know, maybe. There, there's one story that, that is that way. But if you read his uh, guide to self-publishing, I, th I think it's the guide to self-publishing that uh, that Dave Sim put together. All of his pages are on heavy duty illustration board. So it's not even like Bristol. So imagine, you know, 20 pages times 300, 6,000 pieces of illustration board. Like that's... That's that's a lot of volume. Yeah, it is. I think he has most of it still. I do too. Yeah, you don't see it in the aftermarket. Uh, Alan Moore is joining Supreme here, starting with <laughs> issue 41. We got, that's a pretty good run. We got a, a snippet from a Rob Liefeld shoot interview uh, where we just got him talking about the Alan Moore stuff, and it's in total. It's about a half-hour video that's so worth watching. It's, it's got a lot of hits because people just fucking love the impression and stuff. But Rob is funny. He's like, Todd called me up and said that... Uh, that that Alan Moore's writing a Violator comic, and Rob's like, 
the Watchmen guy's writing Violator? Where did we go wrong in comics? <laughs> and then he's like, and he's like, well, you know what I did? I called him up and I got him to, to write Bad Rock Meets Violator. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Where did we go wrong? Pam Anderson between this and that, uh, was it Stripperella, the Stan Lee yeah. animated thing with yeah, her? Yeah, get off this shit. <laughs> get off this casting call bullshit also. I was saying off camera how like, I feel the same way about current movie news that I do about the wizard movie news. Yeah, couldn't give a shit. Not interested. So, like... This, this is, is, like, the second Marvel image crossover. Yeah, this is the zeitgeist, man. Like, like these kind of, like, mech suits. Anime now has a section in the back of Suncoast videos. And we now call it anime. Like, it's, it's, it's become a thing. Uh, for girls, Sailor Moon has hit the United States television markets for boys Dragon Ball is out so it's creating a, a vector to get interested in into this stuff and we saw that brass thing here's the Rob Liefeld version and that chappy app ad kind of like has dudes like built with these kind of like mech, mech parts yeah it's definitely invading this is like what I picture in uh, wizard becoming right you know like this kind of I don't know, low-hanging fruit. Yeah, they should have just showed a picture of Patrick Daniel O'Neill. <laughs> so first look, Matrix, DC's new line of science fiction comics. I think this is actually released as Helix, I think is the final name of this. Yes, yes. And it's an imprint along the lines, I, I think clearly of Vertigo, you know, trying to copy Vertigo, but do sci-fi. Kind of love this idea. One of the things reading this issue made me think is, how do we make new comic readers? And to me, this is a great attempt at making new comic readers. I don't know that any of these ran very long. No, no, and and they were not designed to. They weren't designed to be serious. And I didn't read any of them either. I got so to. I don't know if any are good or not. Like Tim Truman is writing and drawing a vampire hunter story. Yes. Like I bet some of this stuff is is good, but I it, I was just out at this point for these for any kind of Marvel DC stuff. Because they they only they only go halfway. It's half measures. You're getting people who speak the superhero comic language to like play with this other thing. So it just looks like superhero comics with like a different coat of paint. Uh, I, I do have Black Lamb, dig it a whole lot. Yeah, a and, couple of these look good. And, and there's a series that's not mentioned here that Steve Gerber writes, and I can't think of the name now, but it was like set in a prison. And I remember kind of like flipping through one of those. The noteworthy piece of Black Lamb for me in terms of art is uh, this is a comic where Tim Truman makes an argument for the Micron pen. It's, a, it's, a, it's the first time that I've ever seen anybody admit to using microns for the ink uh, of, of a project. And he employs the technique of, of penciling on the back of the page, putting onto the light box to ink on the other side. And that's, an, that's a technique that I, I employed to, to reasonable health, like during my art school period. And the Vermilion one, if I remember correctly, I do have that. And if I remember correctly, Toddlebin will do like, finishes at a certain point and if Toddlebin does finishes it's just it's a Toddlebin artwork yeah there's some nice creators listed throughout that preview I don't know if they all came out that way or not but I applaud DC or anybody for trying it. and and they and they kept doing it you know your minx line yeah a couple years later all right big feature piece on judgment judgment day here finally kingdom come is is here and uh, they bought enough ads that they get a feature. And why not? Like I said, I feel like this is the story of this year. Uh, probably the big success of 1996. And I got no complaints about it. It's it's a pretty ambitious story. Why not? 
Yeah, totally. Um, it's completely on display, the level of fanboy that both Alex Ross and Mark Wade are. Yes. So, you know, reading enough of that kind of talk, you should know exactly what it is going into it. Uh, like, we're not going to get something very deep. Like, literally, if it wasn't on the Super Friends cartoon, it, it doesn't mean anything to Alex Ross. Like, he says so. Yeah, there's a, there's a character in here that Wade is more fond of than Ross because of his age. John John's, I think, Martian Manhunter. Exactly. Um, but I think it's fine. Um, it is, as you say, like a, like fan service in a lot of ways. And it's where comics have really been moving in the last couple of decades. And probably by the late 90s, the people that are sticking around at that point are the fanboys. You know, the people right. that are in it. So uh, and, and that's it's kind of a reward to them. Yeah, that's what it is. And if you want to call it a reward, because uh, there's nothing to pull. Like there's there's nothing to to you know share with the audience because it, it and it's not even really good salesmanship. It's just kind of a matter of it's reportage. You're it's, talking this they, article. The article. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just reportage. The truth is, all, all it should be is like Alex Ross art. You know what I mean? Like that's what pulls us all. Alex Ross doing. The, all the DC characters yeah. is really the the pool there. Um, I, I linger on this ad. This is Big Entertainment who does all the techno comics. I didn't realize that they were the ones who did this adaptation from Tarantino for From Dusk Till Dawn with um, Trevor Von Eden does the pencils in this thing. Yeah, but you don't see his name in the fucking credits. No, and I don't know that this is Trevor Von Eden artwork in this picture. <laughs> doesn't doesn't look like the good Trevor Von Eden artwork I think of when I think of his... It's a funny book. I have it, and it's just very glossy. You know, you can kind of see it's a Hollywood production. Yeah. So fascinating, too. Like, they're promoting, the, like, Alex Ross's next project, and he's got enough equity that he could do a Uncle Sam comic. I just picked that up for a dollar at Pittsburgh Comics, both issues, and it kind of made me curious because I had completely forgotten about it for 20 years, and I was like, oh, I do remember this. Yeah. This being hyped up, and I have no idea. I haven't read it yet. We've seen this image a lot of times, man. Uh, this The smiling Matt Murdock, which they're promoting as, like, new new angle on the character, man. Like, uh, the vestige of, of Frank Miller, Daredevil, has run its course, you know, up to, you know, DG Chichester or whoever the fuck gave him that weird black costume and all that. So let's uh, let's try a little something different. Carrie Nord on drawing duties. I think Carl Kessel uh, on 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 writing chores. Yes. And this was much celebrated at, at this moment in time when comics were it's such doldrums. Everybody had to be happy to go back to this costume as opposed to that atrocious armor looking stuff. That for sure. And then just to put a smile on his face was literally an innovation. <laughs> this is um, this is un unresolved X-Men plots. This is when I was saying there's a lot of Gambit mixed through these. I don't have too much to take on any of this stuff. Like, I was out of X-Men and never Here's bothered to dig into it to see if any of these actually get resolved. Yeah, of course, of course. And even on the cartoons and stuff, they, they don't... But here's the take. It's so clear that the shit your precious canon fanboys is made up on a month-to-month -month basis by the writers who are just on a hamster wheel trying to provide for their families. So... A lot of spaghetti gets thrown at the walls and to the point where like the writers don't even remember the shit that they throw up at the wall. It's funny what, watching uh, Larry Hama interviews online with like Comics Tropes Dude or, or any of yeah. these other people. People who like jerk off a lot to like his G.I. Joe comics and stuff. And you know they're disappointed when Larry Hama's like, I just made it up every month. Like, like you're putting all this like weight on. No, I just made it up. I had a comic I needed to get done every four weeks, and it just 
they're 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 heartbroken uh, when 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 they hear that stuff. It's it's like they're expecting you know some big tapestry at play behind the scenes and he's like no like i get orders and and they'll feel like a lot of life is that way they'll yeah like they'll try they'll do that stuff too like yeah but when they would like bring back zartan with the orange mohawk like did that disappoint you and he's like i have a job to do like (laughs) what are you talking about you know what this made me think is like it's so unreader friendly yeah and i don't mean this article i mean like where x-men are at this point like it just seems so convoluted of like how what how could you start in with this much nonsense? What's the biggest one of our childhood, dude? Is that very last one they talk about? Uh, the X-Men become invisible to electronic sensors. And, and, and it's this weird MacGuffin of uh, now they're erased from history. Like, like they're effectively dead, buried, disappeared, MIA, all of that. And they're like, well, yeah, what happened with that? And the people at Wizard were like, oh, yeah, we forgot about that. The editors at Marvel forgot about that's that. That's pretty much, yeah. That's what you have is Bob Harris is given an answer, and then Wizard's like translating it, and that's basically the answer to this one. Totally. Where, how did this go away? Totally. And and uh, even as kids, when it, we were there, like, that was the X-Men comics when we were kids. And to read it, like, you'd have to reread issue. Like, what happened? Like, how was Rogue here? How was Storm a little kid? It was very strange. What, what just happened? Yeah, that whole thing was strange. I feel like if it weren't Claremont writing that, you know, like that was a certain amount of continuity was the way he wrote and the creative team. If you removed those, it would have just been like, what in the hell is going on? You know, here? that could have been the strike two and three. That could have been the blemish. Like, you know what? We need to get this fucking guy out of here. <laughs> it could be more of the Marvel. Now this time, Wildstorm crossovers. Like this is really, I did not remember how much all of this is happening at the same moment where it's just like, we're desperate. Brett Boof. Got to Got to get this stuff together. Dave Sim in, in a rather unflattering super close-up. Guys could have treated him a little better on that photo, I think. Yeah. Uh, Tom Palmer Jr. from Palmer's Picks conducting an interview with him. He's passed issue 200 on his quest for 300 issues of Cerebus. Uh, I didn't pull too much out of this. Talking self-publishing, which we're going to kind of, it's almost a theme now going forward in this issue. We're going to see more of that covered. Um, but not a whole lot to take away from on this. One of the standouts is the rubber blanket third page ad. Yeah, it's true. It's pretty cool to see. Uh, one of the things that, that is noteworthy is that, uh, you know, he, he gave himself this like 300 issue mandate or whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, goal. Uh, they ask him, you know, like if you're if you're interviewing the guy, you got to ask the question, what happens if, uh, if, you know, it doesn't happen? What happens if something happens to you? And he reveals. And I think he, knowing what we know of Dave Sim, I think he's probably pretty serious it's going to be published with no pages. Like, like the issues will come out with blank pages. And to me, that's an art piece in and of itself. If that was the case, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a concept. That's a piece of conceptual art at, at that moment. It's an interesting notion, but he did make good on it. And, uh, you know, like I was, I was cheering that guy on since I discovered him from spawn comics. Really. I thought it was such a noteworthy thing. Like after that spawn issue came out, for Christmas that year, I got every trade paperback up up to that date, and uh, you know, really dug in, dug in deep with uh, with Cerebus. and of course, spending all your time alone, like making your comic, like there there are negatives that come from that socially, psychologically, and all of that. Yeah, no doubt. But uh, at this point right here, he's he's very cogent. 
little bit of a profile on Gerhard, who had taken over doing the background drawing and really did some exceptional drawings throughout the run of that. There's nobody who draws like him. No, and he describes it as like he would basically get the characters would be drawn by Sim, mm -hmm. and then it would be up to him to position them in perspective and stuff in these backgrounds. That's a wild skill set. It absolutely is, and it's and it's a interesting career to like pursue. You know, it's it's a career that can only happen by accident. There was there was never a job title that was that. I mean, obviously, like people would have ghosts and and assistants who would do the backgrounds for sure, but not make like such a robust career out of it. Yeah. All right. Small wonders. Wizard profiles the big guns of the small press. Uh, Dave Lapham, we've we've talked about him in some videos. Terry Moore, James Owen, Rob Schrab, Terry S. Wood. For some reason, I thought Terry Wood was a was a guy. I was surprised to learn uh, 30 years later that I was wrong. Uh, Martin Wagner, Colleen Dorian, who we mentioned earlier, this one, and Paul Pope. Um, that's a pretty talented group right there, man. This was huge to me. Like, like all of these, once again, Eddie PB in the mush. Eddie P put all these on his pool list and uh, almost none of the comics uh, continued after this with the exception of probably like Stray Bullets and a couple others, man. So like, let's go through each dude to talk about the highlights, man. We'll start off with Rob Schrab. Uh, Scott was his first creative works professionally, which, which is kind of surprising in a way because he has, you know, Hollywood career. Is he Heat Vision and Jack? He is Heat Vision and Jack, which would be my high point personally right. as a fan. Um, but he did Scud for a while and came back to it to do four more issues maybe 10 years ago or something. Image has a big collection, you know, it's 20, 25 issues or so of Scud out there. Yeah. I, th this is actually one that I, I never, like, I grabbed a couple issues and it is his first thing and it does not read well. I'm with you. It's, it's, it's um, confusing. The best parts of it are the covers. At least back then, maybe he became a good cartoonist, but I think it was clear that he had designs for Hollywood and shit like that. And and even maybe even Scud was, you know, maybe he's the first generation of the failed movie pitch that he turns into a comic or something like that. Because he's clearly like, you know, he that's a that's a posed photo. Oh, it's a great author photo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> this is a time before cartoonists were really doing good author photos. I feel like right. that's a pretty good a standout. I always see that Scud collection and think about picking it up because they have like the omnibus of it. It's black and white, so it's cheap. It's like 30 bucks for, you know, the whole run. Yeah. And uh, I do wonder about it because like I have random issues it's and not, I never quite connected to them. Yeah, so I always not, thought not... maybe check it out. But I do like the design of the characters. Super the, cool. The covers are always good, but the interiors are never this. It's always much more like dashed out and, and incoherent. Uh, Martin Wagner, the next dude. Hepcats. Hepcats. And he's at a place now where doing the individual issues does not bear the necessary fruit for him to continue. So we've never heard this kind of chatter before up to this point, man. Uh, he's just going to, and I don't think this materializes in real life, but he's just going to build up a, a arsenal of comics and release trade paperbacks rather than Every individual issues. Every 12 to 18 issues. months. That's the plan there. And yeah, I, I don't think it happens that way. No. It's funny because he definitely has a cult uh, following. I mean, Tom Palmer Jr. gave him mad juice. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Colleen Duran is next, and we mentioned that she has gone to Image Comics, kind of following in that Jeff Smith route. She talks about that she is paying for the printing, but Image, because of their higher profile, can help lower the price of the printing cost because right. it's you know higher print runs or whatever, which she will still pay. That That's confusing to me. I don't totally understand that. Um, or what she means by that exactly. But 
certainly I think it boosted her profile, you know, having that image eye on the book. This is probably about the time that she kind of enters my sphere. She was doing distance solo as a kid and was originally published at Warp. Right. And it was not a good situation. No, that was uh, noted a little bit. Like there were back and forths in the letters pages between the Warp publisher, Richard Peeney, and her. And I was... I got this DVD, man, that came out. Like, it's 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 a biscuit above a bootleg, but it's a guy, like, interviewing a bunch of indie people, and she's on there, and she's talking, and she's, like, literally, literally crying about, like, the... She wouldn't say the name of the publisher, but, I mean, it's Warp. You know, it's here in black and white, and she would talk about, like, like a... Basically, I guess the deal that she signed was, like, a Vertigo-type deal, where, like, warp owns half of it or something like this wow and she had to like fight for the other piece they they you know i i can't, i don't know enough to get into it but she had to fight to just get her whole shit back yeah she describes it here in quotes as a bitter dispute and it does play out you look at some of these magazines from around that that time period and you can see them fighting about it, it might it's, have been in comics journals it's fucking gross man yeah it is let the girl have her thing james owen uh, a lot of these are are cartoonists who are profiled in palmer's picks if yeah. you're unfamiliar with them he does a book called star child and this is a fascinating story yeah selling less than 800 copies of issue two and then he's in an accident he breaks his breaks his hand or something like that broke his hand so it gave him an episode it gave him an opportunity to do star child zero with guest artists like will eisner dave sim p craig russell paul chadwick working over his rough sketches ended up selling forty-five thousand of those completely changes the trajectory of his book as a result I think he goes on to be a successful publisher in magazines, reviving one of the sci-fi magazines. Yeah, like was, Argosy or something yeah, like that. Yeah, something like that. Uh, pretty interesting, his story, but it does kind of deviate out of comics. Yeah, totally. And and I, I got a bunch of those, you know, for, for a quarter. Uh, just like that Scud stuff, like this is a better illustration, which is probably a cover, than his finish on the inside. It's very unique, but it's not really pleasing to the eye uh, you know in terms of my, my taste and stuff so it's kind of kind of a slog kind of hard to, to fuck with yeah it's pretty interesting he ends with i always had an aversion to poverty i hate being poor and i do think he becomes successful just it's it's kind of tangential to the comics work i think dave lapham uh we've done videos on stray bullets huge fan of stray bullets uh he had come up through valiant and defiant Valiant's one that I probably first noticed him at, like Harbinger. Yeah, of course. But just could draw everything in, in a fast. way that looked like it should be boring, but somehow it wasn't. You know, like he drew regular people and, and, and made it compelling. So does Stray Bullets and uh, still doing Stray Bullets, which is pretty cool. There are more issues of the new Stray Bullets stuff, like the flower, yeah. Sunshine of Flowers or whatever it's called, than there was of the original run, which is pretty freaking cool because we had a drought Mm -hmm. for a decade maybe yeah and that drought was between the last issue of stray bullets and the semi last issue it yeah. was like years between those two wrapped it up and then started the new series uh terry s wood doing wandering star and wandering star gets picked up by Sirius. so not image comics but a similar idea of like a lot of these people tell the story about how hard it is self-publishing like making the finances work yeah so you get a publishing partner that hopefully doesn't exploit you or cheat you and they kind of help do that business side of it invoicing and making sure the people that order the books pay for the books right because they all tell stories about distributors going out of business owing them thousands of dollars and you can imagine if you're dependent on that how devastating it could be 
Uh, Terry Moore. Terry Moore, probably one of the underrated self-publishers. He's had three big series go, and his story's cool here. 41 years old, living in Houston, I think he's about a year or two into doing Strangers in Paradise at this point, had worked for an advertising advertising agencies for 15 years. So it's a guy who sort of like has life experience, professional experience and decides, nope, this is what I want to do and talks about that creative freedom of doing your own work and has really, really made it work. To do three series that, you know, continue to be in print and stuff that he self-published, man, that's that's an accomplishment. Yeah, like like he, he struck at the right time where you could probably do big numbers and then I'm sure he has a portfolio of like, outside investments you know maybe own some apartments or something like that that like can pay his nut so that he can continue to pursue a, a, a lot of that stuff but I, I just think he made a lot of decisions good decisions outside of the the comic game i think it, yeah i think it's probably a really smart business guy again coming in whenever you're 40 as opposed to whenever you're 19 and you know washing dishes and struggling to keep the lights on yeah probably makes a big difference um paul pope uh pretty early mentions of paul pope and getting some background on him here at this point, I think he's about done with the first run of THB. I think there's like six issues out, and he's talking about doing a 12-part serial for Dark Horse Presents, which would become One Trick Ripoff. Right. So pretty early in his career in terms of, you know, moving beyond self-publishing and starting to get noticed, although he does say that, that people are coming calling. Like, I think he mentions some publishers uh, offering him jobs, but certainly playing up the importance of self-publishing you know in yeah. this article yeah totally he, he and he, he mentions the manga stuff too he talks a lot about like the attitude coming through in, in the work that he makes he's very conscious of that that's something as a fan like whenever i first saw his work it was it was so different there was an attitude that was really different he would have text pieces in those self-published books that were fascinating yeah. and, and i think that like it was conscious it was almost a persona that he had crafted as part of the that self-publishing and straight up photos of himself man like he, like, he was definitely uh conjuring a persona yeah, and what's his uh and on that uh <laughs> little costume <laughs> on that what do you call it man that those episodes of um anti-gravity room when he shows up he's like there are two kinds of comic book rock stars you either love them or you hate them so i mean he called himself that yes Currently working on the Japanese manga comic, Mongo. So he was also a group of Westerners that did, uh, were at least commissioned. I think Kodansha commissioned yeah. like half a dozen of these guys. I, think, I don't know I if think any he, of it actually made it into print. I think just his. Did it? He, he published some of it himself, but I don't know if like any of it was actually published in Japan. Because I think, I think uh, Mazzy Kelly might have been one of those yeah, dudes. Yeah, I think so. And he, his definitely didn't get put out. It was an A, -li you know, it was a bunch of highly regarded cartoonist here in america milk and cheese this is evan dorkin uh i think he had done something in a previous issue like a board game kind of thing and uh here he is doing a two-page full color spread pretty interesting time too because he would do stuff in deadline magazine i'm guessing around this time yeah you know there was this thing where it's like you could run comics in a glossy magazine like this and uh dorkin did that a few places All right, so now Jimmy Palmiotti is stepping into our How to Draw Comics and doing an ink demo over this Joe Quesada pencil sketch. Boy, that's not a lot to work with for demonstrating ink. <laughs> Joe Quesada, he's, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's a mercenary, man, and, and Wizard ain't paying him nothing to, uh, to draw this thing. Demonstrates different tools, pen, brush, pen, and brush together. But I love this, the tools of the trade, like walking through some of the actual specific tools that he uses. This was always valuable to me, like a real professional 
actually laying out like what he uses because this is what i needed to know what do i have to get my hands on yeah totally man the elusive pro white that you would always hear about like where do i get some of that and then when you finally get it you think it is the real shit and it's like holy fuck this shit sucks this is awful this is the best we have right now because like the it's way hard that, to find good white the, the way well you know what deleter number two is a perfect white out uh you can you can uh put white out down it dries fast you can ink over top of it and you can put more on top of it and that is where pro white failed you get one shot like you you put the white out down you put the pro white down you get one shot to draw over top of it plus it might have some chunk to it and texture and bullshit that you have to navigate around because you can't put it on smooth and flat uh you cannot put pro white out on top of ink that was on top of pro white it immediately turns into like a gray mush and you destroy your drawing. You could never, if you get that gray thing happening, you could never put pro white on top of it because it would just like reconstitute the ink and just make a gray fucking mess. It was the worst. That's funny. And it's ridiculous that they all used it. He cites for his ink, Faber-Castell's Black Magic brand ink. I've never heard of that. What's Higgins Black Magic? Higgins, yeah, Higgins is the only black magic I know, and I I, I, I got to disagree with Jimmy on that, man. That stuff is some washed-out stuff. Yeah, all those old dudes who, who were about Higgins' black magic, they would they have to, like, give caveats, and it's like, you, le- you take the lid off, and you, you let it sit yes. for, for a month. Let some of the liquid evaporate. Yeah, and thicker. it's like, there ain't nothing better. Yeah. Uh, a couple more of those heads combining, again, different media and doing... Uh, modeling on them, which we see again down here when he talks about like finishes versus tight pencils. And if you're given these, if you're doing the finishes, then you get to go in and put a little more of your hand and demonstrate some of what that looks like. Yeah. Figure in silhouette in the middle, background, foreground figures in silhouette with the white in the middle. It illustrates the heavy lifting that a finisher or inker can do. I don't know that Palmiotti ever did it because like I'm sure that Joe Casada isn't turning this shit in when when they're working together and he's making those storytelling decisions. But he's just showing you that it is possible. All right. Homemade heroes. Somebody uh, cashed in on their... (laughs) (laughs) Might as well, man. (laughs) Get your Evangeline half. Ten small press books you should own. So Palmer's picks, man, just really delivering a lot of shopping lists this issue. If you were into indie comics, this would be a good issue for you to take. You're getting a dozen. You're getting a dozen, man. So we've got Dirty Plot. Uh, we, We did a cover episode where we looked at all the dirty plot covers um he calls out issue number nine is one to check out because it's a full-length story about all the weirdos she encountered at art school i may pull that one out just to read for pleasure i don't remember those details so i I enjoy art school takes in these indie comics eight ball kind of says how good almost any issue is because of the nature of the anthology format that he does hate this is when hate had gone into color issues yeah very noteworthy for an indie book and you know and you know what man like whenever red room came out and we were like uh, trying to figure out like how it's doing and all that kind of stuff. They, the publisher cited that the, the biggest selling comic was a hate comic, like you know before Red Room. Yeah, it was it was hate. It wasn't Eight Ball. It wasn't Love and Rockets. Hate was the one that was the best selling individual comic. I'm kind of glad to hear that. You know, hate's a genuinely funny book. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, it's, it's good. I'm I glad mean, that it had success. I'm the biggest uh, Peter Bag fan, but I, I just wasn't expecting to hear that. Yes. But of course, now it's uh, Red Room is like the top five, six uh, <laughs> best selling. I feel like you, should, you should email these dudes. 
constantly <laughs> let him know that <laughs> hutch owens working hard that's a tom hart book that got a Zurich grant he was a guy that was uh around like when i start getting into mini comics yeah that stuff was like that previous generation yeah and and you know what like i i know we there's some good retailers here in town that that like you know specialize in indie they said they've never they carry it they've never sold one copy 25 30 years of having a retail space nobody buys it interesting yeah but you know i'd be curious about all of their indie sales yeah um jar of fools is uh is jason lutz i enjoy this book a lot i actually own it in two different formats it's another xeric grant he's probably best known for berlin which he starts around this time he which does, is yeah. um just a meticulously researched piece about pre-world war ii berlin i believe and ran for like 20 years yeah. in these detailed single issues. Love and Rockets, we've talked about quite a bit. Heartbreaking to see 82 to 96. You know, there's, there's a shelf life on that first volume. There is. But fortunately, this is just 96. So it's not like those guys are off twiddling their thumbs or anything. And they outline their upcoming works, including Jaime's wrestling book, Whoa, Nelly. Yep. And Girl, Girl, Girl Crazy with the, with the Dave Stevens and Coop covers. Yes. Rubber Blanket, David Mazzucchelli. Uh, we spent a lot of time with him. They applaud him going from uh, Batman Year One and Daredevil Born Again to then becoming this this more, I don't know, focusing on the art side of what comics can be. Taboo, the great, I think, underrated horror anthology that Steve Bissett put out, 10 issues worth. Um, and noteworthy things like From Hell starts there. Just a really impressive collection. I guess because it's just hard to find, I think, is the reason it's not more celebrated. But it's it's pretty outstanding for horror comics. Mobius is in there. All like, kind of, uh, S. Clay Wilson. Yeah. It's it's impressive. I have all but one issue. So if anybody has an extra issue seven, send it my way. Yummy Fur, one of my favorites and one of my first breakthroughs, and Zot. And one of these is not like the other. You know, when I think of Zot, though, is very, very early manga. You know, like that's... Yeah, I guess it has, I it has that manga feel. And what I will say is like the, the Harper Collins collection of Zot that has like the black and whites. Yeah. It's real fascinating stuff because you see him employing some of his rubric from understanding comics into the actual comics production, which which is a super interesting yeah. piece of, of that period of Zot. All right. Any movie TV news? get you so i was a, i was a fan i had this vhs tape it had a comic book confidential and then after the credits it's the generation x movie that's fine. and i've watched it a, a lot of times yeah this stuff usually doesn't do too much for me this movie info it's funny to see i, I do enjoy like the ads for shows and things and who the guest lists are and you can kind of see them dwindling as it's is uh, the comics industry's going the wrong direction. For the toy stuff, man, they're talking about Star Wars Shadows of the Empire, and that was like a big second push for for Star Wars because it it transcended, like it wasn't in film, it was, there was a toy line, there was video games, and there was a comic, like, like I think it was Cam Kennedy. No, he did, he did the, um, shit, I forget. But it was, it was sort of a, it was a big deal. At this time, it, it added because it wasn't like a thousand years before the movies. Like it happens in between, it happens in between um, Empire and Return of the Jedi, if if I remember correctly. So it's like all the characters that you know, and that added a lot of life to 
Star Wars before like the um special editions come out and then the inevitable prequels that'll happen. Worth noting in their short takes, George Lucas recently moved up the new release of Star Wars from February 21st, 1997 to February 14th, 1997. It doesn't come out till 99, the, the prequels. Yeah, maybe he's just talking to special editions. Possibly, but there is energy like starting to, to surround Star Wars at this point. And I, I read the Shadows of the Empire like the novel right was yeah, thing, and the novel's was different yeah the novel's different than the comic too so it's like it's like telling different parts of like this this like you know specific narrative there were toys like it was it was real cool on the episode of the toys that made us about star wars they described that he got for his uh royalty like they had to give him ten thousand dollars a year or like five percent and when there was no Star Wars toys coming out, they were giving him, you know, $10,000 checks a year, and they just didn't the one year. And so he, all the rights reverted back to him, and then that's when he promotes wow. the, the prequels coming. Like, after he got all those rights, it was like he was, like, waiting, biting, biting his time, letting them forget so that he could jump into action and then, uh, you know, renegotiate a better toy deal. That's, that's, I knew there was something about that, that his, his toy deal set up but didn't know the details on it. Anything stand out in the more picks? Like, you see these writers, man. You're Ron Mars, you're Mark Wades, uh, the guys who are getting bought by Mark Alessi and going to have to move house and home, which is super funny to me. It's pretty dire, like, the stuff that's being listed here. Yeah, it's so bad, and these guys want to be in comics so much, man, that they're going to let a rich dude buy them and, and ship when them does off that like start? cattle. Is it's going like right to be soonish. Here? You know, maybe 97 at the latest. Kane is uh, one of the self-published books I feel like they could have added if they wanted to. Um, I'm a big fan of Paul Grist Kane. It's a good crime comic. I think it looks cool. Concrete, think like a mountain with the Jeff Darrow covers, I believe. Yeah. Kingdom Come number one, and it's not like a giant called-out spotlight. Right. I guess nothing is really the giant called-out spotlight this issue, but if you were going to do one, that's the one I would imagine. Preacher 15, uh, Yellow Bastard, Sin City 4 of 6. So this is like... Eddie P is going to the comic shop every Wednesday at this point, man. Like I was, Yellow Bastard is the first regular series that I was scooping up, and I'm not quite a preacher fan yet. Like uh, it's with issue 18. It's after this Hunter story. Mm -hmm. When whenever they do that single Vietnam story is when I put it on the list because I had my rule as a kid: never buy part three or something. Got to get it from the start. Interesting. Kane is at 14. Stray Bullets at nine. I did not realize Kane preceded Stray Bullets. It could be publishing frequency as well. I don't know what this is. I don't know who the artist is. Oh, that's Ian Churchill, unmistakable. Wow. Yeah, I was I was out. He was a uh, one of those. He would do uh, fill-ins on Adam Kubert Wolverines, and then he gets scooped up by Rob Liefeld, and I forget what he does. For for image, but then he he's a part of like the heroes so reborn he stuff. He did some witch book, some magic book for them. Mm. I can't remember the name of it, but yeah, it was, was like an extreme published book. Or I was sort of out of awesome that stuff at that time for sure. One of those. Uh, the manga is focusing on Ghost in the Shell, the anime, and, coming and, around, and it's kind of playing in limited release at various theaters in America. I think looking for uh, mainstream distribute, looking for a bigger. Dist distributor in the u.s there's a lot of stuff that that's coming with this first off uh 
it's priming the pump like there is far more interest in anime than, than there ever has been. They talk about some some of the stuff that occurred like in history. They talk about Akira. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in here they mention like MTV playing bumpers because MTV would play uh had had Speed Racer at this yes. time, which was huge. My mom what like when MTV put out Speed Racer again, like my mom was watching that shit. Uh and then they talk about the bumpers in and out of program. That's Ninja Scroll, man. Like I was fucking there, dude. And seeing just like those little thirty se- like five second pieces of Ninja Scroll. Like, what is this? I gotta check this thing out. Uh manga entertainment would, would be, you know, the VHS company that would put out the uh Ghost in the Shell and Ninja Scroll and all that. They funded like half the Ghost in the Shell budget, which is fascinating, because that's an American company pumping in money. And so clearly they they have interest in in growing that market here they do mention sailor moon they do mention dragon ball yes which is brand new on american television which which i mean fucking blows up they mention other stuff like ronin warriors which uh is out around like post power ranger time because you got your multicolor dudes uh, this is this is a good article I feel like it's been spot on since they started this column. They get good people. This Carl Gustav Horn, he, he's he's taken the mantle after Leia Hernandez kind of like dropped some science. Also, I want to point out, man, Ti- Tigers of Terra, this late stuff is not my bag at all. But this artist, Ted Namora, the original Tigers of Terra that, that are like the 80s comics... I fucking hunt these things down and love them. Like, he's putting so much effort into them. The unfortunate thing about this era of those comics is that it's that, it's that like, uh, archive white paper, and he's using um, computer gray tones, so it's just, like, so muddy and dark, you know? Like, that whole era of black and whites, serious publishing, S-I-R-I-U-S, would have that problem, too, where it would be these shitty, yeah. gray, super dark comics, and, and his comics would he would forego the great textures that he would put in in the early stuff for these gray tones and it just kind of a muddy mess do you know the stagger of kamui no but i do not think that it has anything to do with sanpei shirado's famous kamui that's what i was going to ask you know what i thought death might be a uh, a mini series for us to look at i think so all right, drawing board. Some fun stuff here. I like this Galactus. I think that looks pretty good. Lanil Yu. Yes, not the first piece from the uh, from the wizard drawing board, and it won't be too long before he fucking takes over freaking X-Men. Yeah, it makes me wonder, like, is this the most successful cartoonist to come out of the drawing board? He certainly has a giant career all over the place. I like this Sandman, Kevin and Hobbs mashup, because it's even kind of mashing up some of the Dave McKean-isms is, for that yeah. cover. Yeah, it's a good job. It's pretty good. And you see your manga on these bottom two examples, the she and the and the Viz characters, both uh, heavy manga influence there. Yeah, it's here at this point. Yeah, it's for sure. Top ten comics. I don't know if there's anything extra here. Maybe the One Piece is X Patrol number one. The Amalgam book makes it into the top ten. I feel like Dawn number one, as you know, the serious book being number one. Uh, I think, I think that is, that's a piece for sure. I would look at that. That one's interesting in that it's serious, but it's color and it's yeah. a glossy, like it's pretty good production values at a time when comics weren't necessarily known for it, especially indie comics. I always wonder what he uses. If, is it, if it's paint or like he has some kind of like marker approach. They look like washes. Maybe it is marker. I don't know. And maybe something we look at, take a closer look. Uh, the DC versus Marvel. 
So these two are super interesting to me because when we turn the page and we see the past the ads, well, we see the back issue stuff and they talk about amalgam being means hot. They show like their top hundred list. And if you go through it, it is like DC slash Marvel, Marvel slash DC. They have like half of the top 12 books are Marvel slash DC before you get to like 13 and 14 or spawn 47, 46. And it's almost like if you were to erase all those, they'd be like books five and six, the Spawn books. It's like Marvel and DC had to team up to beat Todd McFarlane. <laughs> but that Marvel DC crossover stuff, like they were hoping to juice sales. It's a big success for them. The, the places that I bought those were at Giant Eagle, at, at the Spinner Racks, at the grocery store. So they had newsstand distribution on that material uh, still at that point, man. I, I think it's like that. I remember getting distinctly at the... Uh, at the grocery store and i remember getting those age of apocalypse right over there we had a news store you know galaxy news and and they had the age of apocalypses so i could see us hitting those we've talked about yeah, it yeah, maybe we'll we... pull out a couple of the best of those maybe leave in the comments you guys what are the best of the amalgam books and uh, maybe we'll check those out pretty soon and ed i'm comfortable skipping to the inside back cover at that point and uh wizard profile drew yeah. hayes yeah man so Drew Hayes, known for Poison Elves. We get a lot of feedback in our comments. There's a lot of Poison Elves fans out there. I think there was a recent Kickstarter for a big collection of uh, the late Drew Hayes epic Poison Elves. So comics that still resonate with an audience. And man, that's what you hope for as a creator. You know, you want to tell these stories that make it beyond you and, uh, you know, gone too soon, died very young. But at the same time, like those comics do persist. Like there, are, there is a fandom out there for them. Yeah, it's a, it's a smart conceit in a lot of ways, man. Because uh, you have the D and D era. There's a lot of crossover between like role playing games and comic conventions. There'd be all that overlap. There'd be game sections at the comic conventions and things, which paint a picture of the time. And so you would have that confluence of these these different little subgenres and shit, and like. The elves, it's like Wendy Peeney's this pussy, you know? It's it's whack. It's kind of like soft. So like what we're moving we're in the nineties now, man. We're we're into like, you know, Trent Reznor era. So make like some hardcore elves. Because there's clearly this market, these people that are fucking with that kind of Tolkien type shit. But like make one that's got some gothness to it, some industrial music elements to it and see what you could do and i think this dude got it to like a hundred issues or something he did a lot and like he did a bunch as a self-publisher first and that was his first comic that he made yeah so to do that and pull off the self-publishing for i don't know a dozen issues or something before he goes to i think Sirius is who ends up it publishing serious, a big yeah. run um it's remarkable to be more or less successful as a self-publisher you know like we've just gone through the self-publishing and small press issue of wizard really and you heard people lament how difficult it is to do that um, this guy that has no comics experience basically does it through sheer will. So, and it's a cool that's ass image, man. It's a cool ass image. Uh, once again, though, like the sweat equity put into the covers and the color stuff is pretty divorced from the inside because, like, his interiors like they don't exactly look like that. They're a little bit more schizophrenic. But uh, at this last big Ides sale, I got uh, I Lucifer two. Wow. 
um, that's for, the for initial start. That's how uh, Poison Elf started with I Lucifer was the name of the original several issues. Was it magazine size? Magazine size, yeah. Yeah, the first several issues were magazine size. Um, that's cool, man. I you know at some point we're gonna end up looking at Poison Elves. <laughs> I pulled out some issues. I have a bunch of the serious run, especially the early issues, and actually was looking at them after reading this profile this week. So. Yeah, I'm sure that we'll get some comments about give give that series a look. He's and, amazing. Uh, we probably will at some point soon. Cause like you know, part of these wizard profiles is they make you like you know write a checklist of you know your favorite comics, yada yada. And he he is perfectly like of that time period, man. So he's the age, and and to me, like your favorite toy as a kid and adult, the Shogun Warriors that places you in context for me, man. Like, like you're you're those guys that's like older than you type dudes, like Chris mm -hmm. Pitzer age dudes. And then uh, favorite cartoon Star Blazers. If you say Star Blazers, now you're firmly uh, establishing yourself as a '70s kid for sure. People you most like to work with: James O'Barr, Henry Rollins. So you got that edge, and you got that goth energy. Rollins is his favorite musician. Last good book you read, American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. Like, like I know this fellow. I could profile him. If you just, if I just read this and I saw him in a lineup with, like, say, a couple other people, I, I think I could pick him out. It's a cool story. It's one of the more entertaining profiles that I've read because it does combine with what we know about his comics <laughs> to paint a uh, a picture of an atypical cartoonist. Yes. Yeah. Very singular. And that's exciting to me when we talk about like new. How do you get new readers? You need different creators you need creators who have different points of view and i feel like that's a guy who did fill the niche man uh nature abhors a vacuum okay favors like follow subscribe to the youtube channel hit the bell so that we can notify you when new videos are available cartoonist kayfabe is a daily youtube channel we have more than 1400 videos out there right now uh we've covered dozens and dozens of issues of wizard but a lot more content uh, that you could find also hit the little magnifying glass on the front page give uh the channel a search with your favorite comic titles and if we haven't talked about your faves let us know what they are so that we can push those to the top of our reading piles we have a patreon for the king kayfabers to uh sit in on our live stream recording sessions and get the videos before anybody else ultimately the videos are brought to you by the books that we make you're taking a look at a nice bibliography of our works to date but jimmy tell the people what you got my next book release street angel princess of poverty will be out in november from image comics it collects all of the street angel comics that are not in deadliest girl alive if you don't have that add that to the list too but get to your store and let them know to order a street angel princess of poverty for you orders do now and uh, it'll be out in november wherever comics are sold street angel deadliest girl alive still available at those stores hulk grand design sold out at the distributor level which means it's going to get harder and harder to find if you haven't picked up your copy of the treasury edition of hulk grand design you want to do that sooner rather than later and my latest zines 1986 celebrating the greatest year in comics history and bw celebrating some of the great black and white explosion books some of the not so great ones as well which are my favorites uh, these will both be available at jimrug.com and on patreon.com slash jimrug along with true crime funnies uh three non-fiction stories including a couple of wrestling yarns hip-hop family tree omnibus is able to now be ordered by your comic shop make sure that you do it so that we know where to send these these comics it's a it's a finite print run that we have out there and so many of them are being accounted for online so you cannot take for granted that you'll just see this at the shop and be able to scoop it up let your comic shops know it's a 10-year anniversary of hip-hop family tree 50th anniversary of hip-hop as a culture so we're doing it upright by including all the comics from the first four volumes plus look at that 150 pages of extras 
lot of new art put into this book just to make it a nice cohesive whole uh please support it. it's the best book i've made and it is going to be available for the holidays coming out october 18th in november is the x-men grand design trilogy trade paperback uh that is going to include all of my x-men grand design works it's the one place uh, you'll be able to get all that material because some of those books are currently out of print so scoop that up for the holiday season red room is the current focus there are two trade paperbacks of red room out there right now the anti-social network and trigger warnings uh, but crypto killers is the third and final season of red room if you go to that center spread there there's a story called latchkey kids which i've now uh, retitled switchblade shorties that's the uh daily comic strip that i'm going to be putting together and this is their kind of first appearance in comics so this is a hot key if you see issue three of crypto killers you got to make sure you get your hands on it had to bring a stack of these to, to the parliament funkadelic show because everybody wanted the first latchkey kids this is not the only way to support the cartoonist kayfabe channel however Jimmy, please let the people know. You can subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts, merchandise, hats, mugs, stickers, and more at our spread shop. That link is also in the show notes underneath this video. All great ways to support the channel. Give them those marching orders, Jimmy, and we'll be on our way. Read more comics.